Custom in my home, I have a five-year-old son, cutest little guy you have ever seen. I am serious. Um, you would, I mean, every father tends to say that. I'm telling you the truth. There's no bias in my heart at all. It's just simple fact. He's got ears perpendicular to his head, which is kind of different. But anyway, he, um, he and my wife, before I speak to my youth group, we always get in a circle and join hands and pray for me before I speak. And last week we were praying before I was to speak to my youth group, and I had a little tape recorder. And he didn't know it, and I taped him praying for me before I speak to my youth group. Would you like to hear it? Yeah. Okay, we'll play it right now. Dear God, thanks for giving me a wonderful daddy. Help him to teach. Help my daddy to teach good. Help the kids to listen. And help my daddy not to say any dumb things anymore. <laughs> He's heard me speak before, you see, so. <laughs> That's my boy. That's my boy. Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 20, and we'll dive in. Jeremiah chapter 20. <laughs> oh, you're a fun group. I think the best thing for me to do this morning, since I don't know you and you don't know me, and we only have this one time together, I think the best thing to do this morning is simply to share my heart with you. Would that be fair? To open up my heart and let you see inside and understand something of what makes me tick and what I live with every day and what I feel. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do. Just share my heart with you. Jeremiah chapter 20. I'm going to read to you the first nine verses. And if you would stand with me, please, in honor of the Word of God, I would appreciate it. Jeremiah chapter 20, I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. If you have a King James or an NIV, follow along as best you can. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 1. When Pasher the priest, the son of Imer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, Pasher had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks that were at the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. Then it came about on the next day when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks that Jeremiah said to him, Pasher is not the name the Lord has called you, but rather Magor Mithabib. Um, now in Hebrew, names have a very specific meaning, and that name means terror. Terror. In other words, everyone who sees you will be terrified. That was not a complimental name, right? Not a complimentary name at all. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to make you a terror to yourself and to all of your friends. While your eyes look on, they will fall by the sword of the enemies. So I shall give over all of Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them away as exiles to Babylon, and will slay them with the sword. I shall also give over all of the wealth of the city, all of its produce, all of its costly things, even all the treasures of the kings of Judah I shall give over to the hand of their enemies, and they will plunder them, take them away, and bring them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who live in your house will go into captivity. You will enter Babylon. There you will die. There you will be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have falsely prophesied. That was basically a negative message. Do you kind of sense that? That is not the way to make friends and influence people, right? And Jeremiah had to preach his entire life that kind of message. 
And it got to be a drain on him emotionally. And when you come to verse 7, he was ready to burn out and quit. He was suffering from a chronic case of job burnout. He prays to God, and you kind of sense that in his prayer. Verse 7, O Lord, Thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Obviously, God hadn't deceived him, but he was at rock bottom, and it seemed as if even God was lying to him. Thou hast overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. Every time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. Ready to quit. But then I want to zero in on verse 9. Jeremiah had a quality. And it is a rare quality. It is hard to find it today. And this was the secret to Jeremiah. Verse 9, But if I say, I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, if I do quit, if I stop preaching, then in my heart the Word of God becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. If I quit, if I bail out of this thing, then the Word of God is like a seething volcano within my heart and with explosive force. It will come out of me. I can't quit. Let's pray together and we'll talk about it. The quality of passion in ministry. Thank you, Father, for Jeremiah's example. Thank you for these dear people. What a, what a privilege it is to be here together in this glorious place that honors Christ. We pray now as we come to His Word that You will speak richly to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Let me kind of set this scene historically for you. When Jeremiah was preaching in the land of Judah, the entire nation was given over to the worship of the false god, Baal. You have heard of the god Baal, no doubt. Baal worship, historically, is the most hideous form of idolatry the world has ever known. Baal worship, characterized basically by three things. Baal worship was characterized by temple prostitution. It was ingrained in their very act of worship, it, uh, their worship service really had become a sexual orgy. The temple prostitutes surrounded the building, and as the people came to worship God, they would engage in every form of immorality that you can imagine. A total perversion of worship. Secondly, it was characterized by child sacrifice. It was not uncommon for the people to appease the god Baal, to take their little children, their infant children, and lay them in the flames burning on the altar to the god Baal, if you can imagine. And then thirdly, it was characterized by self-destruction. You might remember when Elijah confronted the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel that the people took rock or stone and gashed themselves and bled in, in, in an attempt to evoke the mercy of their god Baal. That was very common. Self-mutilation, self-destruction. I would submit to you, if you think about it and think this through with me, I think you'll realize that it's true in a certain sense. Baal worship has recreated itself in our own nation, hasn't it? Temple prostitution. We certainly don't mix immorality with our worship, but across America we are a nation given over to immorality, are we not? Sure we are. Child sacrifice. Every 20 seconds in this nation, every 20 seconds, 365 days a year including Christmas, every 20 seconds an unborn child is murdered in this country. Every 20 seconds. I think it was last week the Supreme Court in a 5-4 to four vote upheld the baby doe legislation. Did you hear about that? 
You read about that? Several years ago, baby Doe, a child was born, had an esophageal problem, was also born with Down syndrome. The parents didn't want to keep the child because of the deformity and would not sign the papers giving the hospital the right to treat the child. They wouldn't sign permission for the corrective surgery. People found out about it. By the hundreds, literally, they called the hospital. They said, we don't care if the child has a deformity. We can't have children on our own. We want to adopt the child. And the hospital said, no, the rights of the parents have to be honored. It went to court. In a courtroom, the judge ruled the rights of the parents have to be honored. The baby was placed on a shelf and seven days later, tragically died. And last week, the Supreme Court, in a five to four vote, the self-proclaimed deities of our nation, the Supreme Court voted to uphold that legislation. Child sacrifice. Murder is legalized in this nation. And self-destruction. Among teenagers, suicide is the number two killer, second only to traffic accidents. Suicide. So in a sense, history has repeated itself. And Baal is worshipped in a sense in America today. Jeremiah was called to preach to that nation head on. You can see that in chapter 19. Let me just give you an example of that. Chapter 19, verse 4, God speaking, says this, Because they have forsaken me, because they have made this an alien place, and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods, that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known, because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did ever enter my mind, says God. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather the Valley of Slaughter. And Jeremiah was given the unenviable task of preaching a message of judgment throughout his entire life to that kind of a society, to a group of people who would not respond. He had no converts. God told him that when He called him. Not one person will listen. In fact, they did not only not respond, they reacted. He was beaten on several occasions. He was dumped into a pit and left to die on one occasion. He was made a laughing stock, subject to public humiliation. And he came to a point in his life when he was, quite frankly, ready to quit. It had gotten to be too much. And the thing that shines like a brilliant star against a black backdrop as I read chapter 22 to you is this. Jeremiah came to grips with the fact that he could not quit. There was a quality about him. And I like to call it the quality of passion. He was a man whose heart was set on fire. There were times perhaps when the flame flickered, but when it came down to a point of choice, that flickering flame was fanned into a, into a spectacle and he could not quit. He had to keep preaching. The question today is, where is the passion today? Where is the burning heart? Do you have one? Do I have one? Let me define passion for you. What is passion? I define it in this way, an inward burning desire to accomplish something for the glory of God. A desire that is so great it cannot be ignored. A desire that is so vast it cannot be denied. A desire that is so all-consuming we must seek its fulfillment or else we feel like we will die. Passion. It is a goal. 
It is a dream. It is a vision. Something we want to accomplish for the glory of God that has so captured our hearts. We give everything in sacrifice and a pursuit to accomplish it. Passion. We're talking here about fanatical commitment. We're talking here about incredible sacrifice. We're talking here about the investment of a life in the accomplishment of a goal for the glory of God. Passion. And yet there is so little of it today. I believe that it results from a walk with God so intimate that we see what He sees, we hear what He hears, and we feel what He feels. There are several illustrations of it biblically. Passion is Elijah, Mount Carmel. 450 prophets of Baal. And he confronted them as one man and he shouted to them this statement. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. Passion. Passion is Paul when he entered the city of Athens and saw the city given over completely to idolatry. And in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16 it says that the heart of Paul was stirred within him. What stirs your heart? What stirs mine? It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? One time I heard someone preaching about them, Daniel 3, and he pronounced their names, your shack, my shack, and a bungalow, but that's not exactly accurate. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you remember the story, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, humble guy that he was, erected a statue of himself, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, solid gold, made a law, a decree. When you hear the band play, you come out, bow down, and worship this thing. And when the band played, the people poured out by the thousands, bowed their knees in front of this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. But if you look carefully, there were three men standing upright, refusing to bow. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They were called in before the king. Their lives were threatened, and I love their response. Their response in Daniel 3, basically the bottom line was this. King, get this one thing straight. We would rather burn than bow. Passion. I see it in athletics all the time. You like sports? I see it all the time. Passion. I remember the Super Bowl. What a vivid illustration in my mind that was. Several months ago, did any of you watch it? The Super Bore, some people called it. And um, I remember watching William Refrigerator Perry. Remember him? He sells TV dinners now on commercials. And he scored a touchdown toward the end of the game. He broke through the line and scored a touchdown. He's a big guy, by the way. I mean, the guy is huge. He weighs 390 pounds. I mean, we're talking about a big guy here. They had to buy his uniform from Omar the tent maker. You know, he, he was big. You know, when he was born, he weighed 13 pounds. Can you imagine? How would you like to be his mother? 13 pounds. His birthday is December 13th, 14th, and 15th. I mean, this guy's big, you know? big guy first time first time he ever saw the Goodyear blimp he said mama well you get the idea you know he was big and toward the end of the game they handed him the ball he broke through the front line scored a touchdown the camera zeroed in on his face I will never forget it what a vivid illustration of passion and he took that ball and his face looked like he was possessed his eyes were on fire, and he took that ball and he spiked it. And I would have thought, had I just walked in and just turned on the TV, I would have thought that he just scored the winning touchdown. You know what I mean? A close game, the ball game on the line, 10 seconds on the clock, he just won the Super Bowl. The score was 44-3. to three. You know, 
<laughs> Unbelievable. Tragic if you think about it. I mean, here's the guy who had a very big heart. A very big heart. But a very small goal. The question I ask is, where are the big hearts and the big goals? It's tragic that so many of us want so little. I work with young people, and I guess the thing that breaks my heart the most is some of the young people in my youth ministry have talents coming out of their ears. They could set any goal in the world and achieve it. Anything. They have the potential to go for anything and accomplish it. And their whole life is set in front of them. And yet they want so little. The American dream. A house, a car, a wife, and a dog. And that's all they want. That's it. A house, a wife, a car, and a dog. Content with just floating through life, making no impact, having no influence, dreaming no dreams, and seeing no visions. And I'm afraid that today the church has become consumed with the good life, right? Just a selfish, never-quenched thirst for nice things, fun times, toys, games, trips, and parties. And as some people have said, the church has become in many cases fat and sassy, never satisfied with what we have and always wanting more. And that's tragic. That is so tragic. Someone once shared this with me, and I've never forgotten it. Some men die in battles. Some men die in flames. But most men die by inches playing silly little games. How tragic if that's true of us in the church. Well, passion, how do I illustrate it? What does it look like? Maybe the best way to deal with it is to share with you my own. I have a passion. There is something I live with every minute of every day of my life. Something I cannot escape, something that has captured my own heart. And something, no doubt, I will carry to my grave unless the Lord in His glory returns to take me to be with Himself. Would it be okay with you if I indulge your patience by sharing with you mine? Would that be okay? I don't normally like to talk about myself, but in this kind of a situation, I know me better than anybody, so maybe this is the best way to be accurate with all of you in presenting what a passion is. I have the privilege every summer... I teach at the Master's College, and we're off during the summer, and I have the privilege of speaking at several camps throughout the country. Tremendous privilege. And I spoke at a camp, a junior high camp, and a girl at that camp wrote me this letter. And I thought I'd share it with you. Because this is typical of the kind of mail that I get, and it paints a very vivid picture. It says this, Hi, Dewey. Whittier area, that was her church, Whittier area made it back all okay, but my friend's luggage got run over by the bus. You thought that only happened at your church, right? I only talked to you a couple of times, but I thought you were really great and interesting. I could have listened to you forever. I don't write them, I just read them. <laughs> You really got through to two of my friends, Brad and Chrissy. Brad was into drugs and heavy metal music. My other friend, Chrissy, was really into sex. How do you get really into sex? I don't quite understand that phrase. But thanks to you, my friend Brad threw away or burned all his tapes, and he's going to like a drug clinic to help him with his drug problem, and Chrissy is going to go home and tell her boyfriend, hands off and no more. I'm sure that went over big. If they happen to write to you, please don't mention my name. Thank you. I have two more friends at school, and they always lecture me not to take drugs or have sex until I was married. Not that I was going to take drugs or have sex until I was married. Well, anyways, one of my friends is a Mormon, 
she's going to have an abortion September 10th. And when I tell her about God, she ignores me. My other friend is a Jehovah's Witness. She's in the hospital because she overdosed on drugs. She's in a coma. She has been for two days. My friend that is pregnant, it's her fifth time, and she's only 13. The doctor said that she could die if she has the child because she's so small, and she could die if she has another abortion. Please help. Could you send some packets or something to help me? Thank you for reading my problems. I really appreciate it. Write back to me if at all possible. I'll send you pictures of me from school when I get them. Love in Christ, Shauna. Somebody once said there are three kinds of lies in the world. There are black lies that are obvious perversions of truth, deceptions. There are white lies that are little twisting of the truth, subtle little deception. And then the third kinds of lies are statistics. And there's some truth to that. You can make a statistic say anything you want. I don't want to belabor the point, but statistics tend to paint a picture, don't they? And so let me share with you some statistics. These are facts. It is a fact that 90% of all guys and 80% of all girls will lose their virginity and become sexually active before high school graduation in this country. 90% of the guys, 80% of the girls. It is a fact that one million teenage girls, one out of every ten, will become pregnant each year. Some 30,000 girls under the age of 15 will also become pregnant, and one-third of all teenage pregnancies terminate in a legal abortion. One-third. Eighty percent of all girls who become pregnant during high school never complete their high school education. Seventy-two percent of those who first give birth between the ages of 15 and 17 are on welfare. 60% of all teenage marriages result in divorce within the first five years. 99% of all teenage guys and 91% of all teenage girls say they get most of their information about sex from pornographic magazines. Can you imagine? A couple of months ago with my own youth group in California, I did a study of the subject of incest and spoke on that issue. Incest. We don't hear much about it today. In my research, I discovered, among other things, these startling facts. One of the country's leading authorities called incest, quote, the country's greatest single social problem. Now, when you consider the problems of alcoholism, teenage runaway, drug abuse, to call incest the country's greatest single social problem is quite a statement, true? This will blow you out the back door. Are you ready for this? And this has been substantiated by James Dobson. 25% of all girls, that's one out of four, and 20% of all guys, one out of five, will be sexually molested before the age of 16 in this country. That is incredible to me. That is staggering beyond imagination. One-fourth of all girls and one out of five of all guys sexually molested before the age of 16, most in their own homes. I have been literally amazed as I travel from camp to camp and as I have addressed this issue, how many girls especially, but on occasion guys, have come up to me after with tears streaming down their faces 
admitting to me that they had been sexually molested as a child and had never had the courage to admit it to anyone because they felt like they were all alone. And the most tragic thing I have found is that without exception, every person I have talked to who has ever been raped or sexually molested in some way invariably have blamed themselves for it and carry an incredible load of guilt. And it has been my joy on the authority of the Word of God to be able to share with them that if they have been molested, if they have been raped, if they are the victims of incest, God does not hold them responsible. They are the victim of a very hideous crime. They are still virgins because purity can never be taken away. Purity can only be given away. And no one can take the purity away from anyone. And to see that truth dawn upon their minds and their eyes flash with a new sense of relief has been a priceless experience for me. In the Bay Area in California, around San Francisco area, 930 women were randomly chosen and 152 admitted that they were sexually abused before the age of 1844 by their own natural father. And the most unbelievable thing about that is that of those 152 women, only four ever reported it to the authorities. I picked up Psychology Today. Are you familiar with that journal? They ran an article on the subject of incest, and this is the best that modern-day psychology can do to face the problem. This is the best modern psychology can offer. Are you ready for this? Unbelievable. Quoting from Psychology Today. Incest is strictly avoided in most human cultures, yet it is estimated that every year as many as 250,000, that's a quarter of a million, children in the United States are sexually molested in their homes, with 75% of these incidents taking place between fathers and daughters. Now here it is. Sexual abuse of daughters by their own fathers could be substantially reduced by getting fathers much more involved in holding, feeding, and diapering their daughters. Is that unbelievable? That is nonsense. It goes on to say this. They suggest such things as requiring high school classes that give boys hands-on child care experience. So how do you change the trend? You take a high school boy and teach him how to use a pamper. Ridiculous. But then here's the punchline. They base this on studies of apes, monkeys, and rats. Well, then obviously it's authoritative. I mean, you know. Absolutely incredible. It is a fact that young people today are growing up in a totally humanistic, hedonistic society. Let me define those terms. Humanism simply refers to the fact that God has been systematically eliminated from the world of teenagers today, primarily through the public school system. If you attend a science classroom, for example, as I have done, we are taught that we are the products of natural selection rather than supernatural creation. Evolution is scientific fact, after all, and biblical creation, we are told, is religion. When in reality, to be scientific, something has to be provable, observable, and testable. True? You have to observe it, be able to test it, and reproduce it. And no one has ever observed evolution. There is no way to test it, and it has never been reproduced in a laboratory, and yet we are told that evolution is science. That's a lie. When you deal with the origin of man and the destiny of man, you are into the realm of religion. And evolution is as much a religion as biblical creation. You attend a history class, young people are told that, told that history always repeats itself. It is circular, an ongoing, never-ending cycle, when in reality history is linear with a definite beginning and a definite end. 
It is in reality his story, is it not? Sure. But they are not taught that. Psychology, they are taught that they are nothing more than the, than the result of a programmed response like Pavlov's dog. You ring a bell and salivate and that's all that they are. And if they have hang-ups in their lives, they are taught to what is called the blame shift. Shift the blame on someone else for your hang-ups, right? I mean, you were three years old. You were walking through the kitchen. You tripped on a banana peel. Your head caved in the refrigerator door. You have anorexia. What do you expect? You know, that kind of thing. Fourth period, they attend an English class, and there they are taught the Bible is a book of literature rather than divine revelation and absolute truth. Political science, they are taught that law is determined by what is best for the most people. Law is determined by what is best for the majority of society rather than based upon the absolutes of the Word of God. In a philosophy class, they are taught that human reasoning is the gateway to all truth. And then for good measure, seventh period, they attend health class, and there they are taught the details of the sex act without any mention of God's morality governing its use and expression. In fact, in L.A. County, where I am from, they are even, as a pilot program this fall in September, setting up on several selected campuses um, clinics to make available to the teenagers there, free of charge, without parental consent, contraceptives in order to stem the tide of unwanted teenage pregnancy. In fact, where I was youth pastor for several years in the city of Burbank in the health class, they took contraceptive devices and passed them around the class so the students could feel them and see how to use them and be told where to obtain them. Humanism. God has been removed from their world, their thinking. Hedonism. Hedonism is the philosophy that says that man's pleasure is the highest goal. If it feels good, do it. Go for it. You only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto that you can. The latest thing now is crack. Have you heard that term? crack. It's been on the cover of Newsweek magazine. It's become a national epidemic and a real problem. I was in Manhattan last week at two in the morning. My friend Tom Maharis, some of you may know him, and I were going down the streets of Manhattan among the tenement buildings witnessing the teenagers out on the street. Two in the morning, man, it is alive down there. And uh, we had the privilege of leading two girls to Christ. And they showed us where all the drug centers were, where you could obtain anything. And the big thing on the street now is crack. What it is, is cocaine and it is, if you're familiar with freebasing, it is kind of a process to purify the cocaine. They take raw cocaine, purify it to make it as pure as they can. Then instead of inhaling it through the nose, which is the normal way to use cocaine, it is smoked. And it presents a, a rush, they call it, a high that is instantaneous and it is far more dramatic than the normal cocaine high. And the tragic thing about crack is it is so pure that when a student partakes of it, it produces instant addiction. Instant addiction. And you can obtain a hit for $10, so it is within the economic means of most teenagers. Instant addiction. And that is the result of hedonism. Man's pleasure. And so we're raising a generation of burnouts. It is a fact that Satan has pulled a media blitz in an attempt to capture the minds of teenage America. Through the medium of rock music especially, as well as other mediums of communication, Satan has captured the minds of teenage America. The day before I left to come here, Ozzy Osbourne was in concert in Long Beach. Ozzy Osbourne has a part of his routine that they call a jump for freedom. And as he involved, they were at the Long Beach Arena. The place was packed with some 16,000 people and he tried to engage them in this jump and two guys jumped off a balcony. One broke his neck and died. The other suffered severe head damage. And that is typical. It is the fact that the family unit in America has broken down. 
Over one half of all young people now are growing up in broken homes, and consequently the state has replaced the family as the primary center for learning. So the state religion of secular humanism is pumped into the minds of our young people without any obstacle at all. It is a fact that there are 27 million teenagers in America. 27 million. And they are without a doubt in my mind Satan's primary unique target. I don't think there's any question about it. If you were Satan and you wanted to destroy a nation, what age group would you target? If you wanted to destroy a life, what age group would you target? He is not foolish. And he understands that if he can get his fangs into the neck of a 15-year-old and corrupt that kid, he has won a trophy for life. Hitler understood that. On the grassroots level, the movement in Nazi Germany was a youth movement. And if Hitler could change the course of the history of the world by capturing the young people, then I am certain the demons who possessed him understand that strategy as well. Let me put it all together for you. In the next 30 minutes, in the next 30 minutes, in this country, 29 children will attempt suicide. 57 children will run away from home. 14 teenage girls will give birth to illegitimate babies. 90 girls will receive a legal abortion to end an unwanted pregnancy. 685 teenagers will take some form of narcotic. 188 young people will experience a serious drinking problem, one-eighth of those ending up a chronic alcoholic. 285 children will become victims of broken homes. And 228 children will be beaten, molested, or otherwise abused by their parents. Not a pretty picture. I would dare say this. It is a fact that apart from the Spirit of God, apart from the Spirit of God, we are not losing the war when it comes to the young people of our nation. Apart from the Spirit of God, we have already lost it. But I'm encouraged by the fact that one man plus God constitute a majority anywhere and where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Hallelujah. And I believe that the key to the whole thing is a highly trained, highly skilled individual whom we refer to in our churches as the youth pastor. I visualize a youth pastor as nothing less than a cross-cultural missionary commissioned by God to a mission field of 27 million people larger than most third world nations, ministering in a cross-cultural context. Think about it. Young people dress differently than we do. They talk differently than we do. They have different forms of entertainment than we do. It is cross-cultural. And there is a need today to train such young men and skill them in every dimension of pastoral ministry and the art of cross-cultural communication, evangelism, and discipleship. And that is what we are attempting to do at the Master's College. It is tragic that in most churches, the youth pastor has been relegated to a stepping stone mentality. And it is tragic that in most situations, the youth pastor is looked upon as a glorified, um, what should we call him, a gopher. Um, go for this, go for that, right? Do whatever nobody else wants to do. Rather than a highly trained, specialized individual. And it is a fact 
that in order to make an impact upon these 27 million young people, the local church has got to be at the hub of it all. And I think there is a need today to take the position of youth pastor and elevate him to the place of prominence that he ought to have. A cross-cultural missionary. I am asked all the time. It's, it's incredible. I am asked all the time, when are you going to become a real pastor? I hear that all the time. I had somebody at Grace not long ago. I had preached in the evening service and a dear man came up to me after and he pulled me aside and he said, well, it's obvious you won't be here long. I thought, was it that bad? I, you know, I'm sorry. It's the best I can do. Uh, he said, well, you know, some church will come along and they'll offer you a pastorate and you'll be like the rest of them and off you'll go. Somebody asked me last night, I was over at the ranch last night with some of the junior hires and somebody there on staff asked me, what do you want to do? What's your long-range goal? Where are you headed? And it was a thrill for me to be able to say, I want to do what I am doing now for the rest of my life until I drop dead. What am I going to become a real pastor? Here's the answer. I am a real pastor, number one. But secondly, I'm not. if you mean when am I going to become a senior pastor, I'm not ready for a demotion yet. I mean, that's how I feel. You know? Now, for any senior pastors who are here, you understand I say that tongue-in-cheek. Thank God for senior pastors who have... I'll tell you what John MacArthur told me last week. Blessed my heart. Put his arm around me. He said, Dewey, in terms of the future of Grace Church, our priority ministry is going to be the youth ministry of Grace Church. Boy, that blessed my heart. That is the mission field. In my immediate area of influence, San Fernando Valley, there are 57,048 high school young people. 57,048. And I have a God-given mandate to do everything I can to reach them. Thank God for the youth pastor in your church. And if you do not have one, then I would encourage you to go home and talk to members of the board and begin to pray that God will send you a highly trained, highly skilled individual. Not somebody who has just graduated from high school and is too zealous to turn you down and too naive to know otherwise and throw him to the dogs and pat him on the head and say, be warmed and filled. We're talking about a young man who has been called by God to be a missionary to 27 million teenagers across America. I believe it to be a God-given call as real as the call of Isaiah or the call of Jeremiah. A man called the youth ministry who has trained properly for it and thank God for word of life and their vision for that in setting up a Bible institute that trains youth workers. It's rare to find. Rare to find. Not a pretty picture, is it? What is my dream? My dream is that God will raise up men and women across America with a vision and a burden and a passion for what God will do and can do through their lives in penetrating this vast, unreached mission field. My passion to be used by God to plant this dream in the minds and hearts of young people across the country, to be used by God to train them in youth ministry, to be used by God to penetrate the youth in my own area of influence, which at the present time numbers 57,048. My passion is to be used by God as a youth evangelist on the front line in youth camps as God would open doors. My passion would be to stir your own heart as to the priority of youth ministry in your own church so that if nothing else, some of you will take the challenge and pray that God will raise up that skilled man in your own midst and perhaps for others of you, to be willing to use some of the resources God has given you in funding such a ministry 
in your church. Let me close with this article. It appeared recently in our local newspaper. The headline reads, Teen Suicides Prompt Board Action. After hearing that an estimated 400 Los Angeles County teenagers... Now let me stop. Los Angeles County is my area of immediate influence. Our church is in the middle of L.A. County. So this particular statistic applies to my area of influence. This is what happened last year right under my nose. After hearing that an estimated 400 L.A. County teenagers took their own lives last year, that is L.A. County alone over one per day, the L.A. Board of Education voted to approve a suicide prevention program Monday. Some authorities say that the suicide rate has tripled in the last 20 years with over 100 U.S. teenagers taking their lives every week in this country. Over 100 a week. Suicide prevention groups say the actual number of suicides exceeds reported numbers by up to five times because suicides are so often classified as accidents. That statistic is very cold and impersonal, isn't it? It's easy for our senses to be deadened. It's easy for us to hear that and yawn and shake our heads and say how tragic. Somehow I have to make that statistic live in your heart. So I'm going to take a risk right now. A big risk. Some of you will accuse me of emotional manipulation in what I am about to do, but I assure you that it is not emotional manipulation. Manipulation has to do with an impure motive, and I assure you that my motive before God is pure. I somehow want to make that cold, impersonal statistic come alive, something that you can sense and feel. So here's what I'm going to do. A 16-year-old boy by the name of Dexter Garner killed himself. Most people, when they commit suicide, leave some form of a suicide note. Many do not, but most do. Rather than leave a suicide note, Dexter Gardner recorded a suicide message to his mother on a cassette player on his desk in his bedroom. And after recording the message, put a shotgun to his head and pulled the trigger. And I'm going to take a risk by playing that tape for you. Not to manipulate you emotionally, but to somehow transport you into the thinking of an LSD addict who, in the midst of an LSD trip, a high, took his life. I want you to hear something of the despair that he felt. I want you to hear something of the emptiness. It's going to be hard to understand in part because he didn't record this in a recording studio, obviously, and he was on an LSD high and he, his words are slurred. So it'll be tough to hear at some points. You'll hear him at the beginning saying over and over, can't think, can't think, can't think. He will talk about what a mess he's going to be in when he, when he has to greet the big man upstairs. He'll make a statement relative to the fact that he who takes his own life will not be resurrected, is what he says. And so he will say, I know that I will suffer not only physically but eternally for this. Incredible. And then you'll hear the blast of the shotgun at the end. Again, I'm not trying to manipulate you, but somehow I've got to communicate to you what goes through the minds of young people one per day in my area of influence. 
to maybe stir your heart as mine is stirred about the things we have talked about. The words you will now hear are those of 16-year-old Dexter Garner. Can't think. Can't think, can't think, can't think. Well, that all I have to say is the reason I'm doing this. Well, actually, the real reason is that I really don't know. There's so many things that I don't know. I'm not sure of. A lot of things I can't face. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. You're going to get messed up, boy, on that, on that stuff. You might hear it sooner or later, Mom, but uh, your little boy has tuned in to a LSD addict. I'm sorry, Mom. It's bad news. It really is. I didn't think it was when I was first taking it. But uh, it's been getting pretty stoned lately, and you just don't know what's real and what isn't real. You really don't. Uh, all I can say is I had to find out myself. Uh, this stuff, I don't, I don't know. You just don't know if you do the right things or the wrong things. It's hard to distinguish between right and wrong. It's hard to distinguish between real and unreal. He 
95% of all people who find Jesus Christ do so before the age of 22. What an incredible job God has laid before us. John Wesley said this, The world is my parish. A man who had a passion. Henry Martin, the missionary to India, when he overcame all of the obstacles he had to face and finally got to India. When the boat landed and he got off the boat and fell upon the sand of the beach, he cried out, Now God let me burn out for you. John Knox cried, Give me Scotland or else I will die. William Carey, the father of modern missions, coined the phrase, Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Adoniram Judson endured illness, buried two wives on the mission field, several of his children on the mission field, was placed in what he called a dark, dank, vermin-infested prison house with fetters binding his ankles, at night being hoisted up by my ankles to a pole suspended from the ceiling with only my shoulders resting on the ground, waking up each morning numb and stiff. Every day executions are being carried out and no one knows who's next. His wife Emily said, We are bothered by thousands and thousands of bats, a full share of cockroaches, beetles, lizards, rats, ants, mosquitoes, bedbugs, and a company of black bugs about the size of the end of your finger. Now why? I mean, enough is enough, Adoniram. Just take a vacation, you know? Well, his son Felix accepted a position with the Burmese government, and we get insight into Adoniram's heart when he said this, quote, my son Felix has shriveled from being a missionary into a mere ambassador. Dwight Lyman Moody shook two continents for God, his influence continuing to this day. His music man, Ira Sankey, said, Oh God, tire Moody out or give the rest of us superhuman strength. <laughs> what was the secret to Moody? What drove him? He said this, quote, I see the world as a sinking ship. People are trapped, destined for doom. God gave me a lifeboat and said, Moody, save all you can. Martin Luther, who sparked the Protestant Reformation by nailing the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, he said, the authority is not the church, the authority is not the Pope, the authority is the Word of God, and on this I stand. David Brainerd endured illness, depression, finally dying of tuberculosis at the age of 29 gave his life in an attempt to reach the American Indian, and he said in his journal, quote, It was very affecting to see the poor Indians who the other day were hallowing and yelling in idolatrous feasts and drunken frolics, now crying out to God. Jim Elliot, martyred by the Aka Indians, that familiar phrase, He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose, a man of passion. And then finally, Hudson Taylor, who founded the China Inland Mission, was preaching in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, Charles Haddon Spurgeon's church. And when he was through, Spurgeon mounted the steps to his pulpit. And Spurgeon said, quote, China, China, China is now ringing in our ears in that special, peculiar, musical, forcible, unique way in which only Mr. Taylor can utter it. And my prayer is that this morning, young people, young people, young people will be ringing in our ears. Young people need the Lord, as was so beautifully with the voice of an angel sung to us this morning. Let's bow together in prayer. Thank you, Father, for these moments that we have shared together, for these dear people who love you and love your word. I pray that you will spark in our hearts a flame that will cause us to pray for the youth of our nation.
and pray for those who serve the youth of our nation and perhaps some this morning who have received a vision from you to start a youth ministry in their own local church. We pray, Father, that you will be true to the Word when it says, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. That is our hope. And we thank you that because you said it, it is absolute truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.